Welcome to another quarantine episode of Evidence-Based Radio. As always, you can find this and previous shows as a podcast on your favorite podcatcher or via the website evidencebasederrata.com. You can also find me on Twitter at EBR underscore VFR, where I'm hoping to spend more time um, again. I think that I will try and uh, get into that account a little bit more. I have a personal account, but um, I'm not sure how much you want to see about my personal um, political fights. (laughs) Okay, let's try to reclaim a little normality this week. But as we do that, let us remember that it is our privilege which allows us to return to this normality. The ability to have the freedom to ignore the worst aspects of our world at the moment and to embrace a love of science and learning unfettered by racist violence, economic depression, issues of health, or concerns about just how badly our government is messing up things across the board. Let's start out tonight with the detection of a phenomena that was predicted 40 years ago. The ExoMars Trace Gas Orbiter, which has been circling Mars since 2016, or orbiting, uh, (laughs) has detected green airglow emissions from the atmosphere of Mars using the Nomad Spectrometer, which surveys the Martian dayside surface in both visible and ultraviolet light. Now, this was first predicted around 40 years ago, according to Jean-Claude Gerard of the Université de Liège in Belgium, and the lead author of the new study published in Nature Astronomy. Air glow green line emissions are different from auroras, which are caused by the Earth's magnetic field. Uh, As you probably know, Mars doesn't have a particularly strong magnetic field, so it definitely doesn't have auroras. Green line emissions are caused by the sun's rays exciting atoms and molecules in the atmosphere, with oxygen atoms providing the green glow. Day glow is molecules being broken apart, while night glow is those molecules recombining. Much of the oxygen in Mars's atmosphere is caused by the breaking down of carbon dioxide. Previous observations hadn't captured any kind of green glow at Mars, so we decided to reorient it to reorient the ultraviolet and visible spectrometer to point at the edge of Mars, similar to the perspective you see in images of Earth taken from the ISS, explained Anne Karine Vallade from the Royal Belgian Institute for Space Aeronomy in an ESA press release. And of course, ESA is the European Space Agency. Um, and so uh, just while we are here, the astronauts in the ISS actually are able to see this green glow um, on the Earth's or in the Earth's atmosphere. So we knew it existed because we were able to see it on Earth because, of course, Earth has lots of oxygen um, comparatively. And so we thought, well, Mars should definitely have it too because it does have enough of the kinds of compounds that would create it. Okay, 
So the team looked at the atmosphere between 12 and 250 miles above the surface of the planet. Green oxygen emissions were found at all of these altitudes, but were most prevalent at 50 miles above the surface, with variation due to the changing distance of the planet toward the sun. Now, this is not only a nice confirmation of the theory, the tool can now be used to measure the density of the Martian atmosphere. This can help engineers better plan for new missions to Mars that need knowledge of atmospheric drag for properly designing parachutes and other components for landing safely on the surface. And speaking of the sun, the Solar Orbiter Project, which is a collaboration between NASA and the European Space Agency, is moving into a new phase this week. On Monday, the orbiter completed its first close approach to the sun, reaching perihelion, some 48 million miles from the surface of the sun. Over the next five months, mission controllers will test out the many instruments which are installed in the orbiter, at the end of which it will begin its primary mission. The probe was designed by the ESA with help from NASA and features 10 onboard instruments. The probe has six different cameras or a necklace of cameras. Sorry, I was just gifted the book An Exaltation of Larks, which is a delightful book about collective nouns. Um, And so I couldn't help myself. (laughs) Getting back. One of the primary goals is to better understand the sun and how it creates and controls the environment in our solar system. We have never taken pictures of the sun from a closer distance than this, said Daniel Mueller, an ESA solar orbiter project scientist in a press release. There have been higher resolution close-ups, such as those taken by the four-meter Daniel K. Ayue solar telescope in Hawaii earlier this year, but from Earth, with the atmosphere between the telescope and the sun, you can only see a small part of the solar spectrum that you can see from space. And so they will collect preliminary data during this phase concerning the sun's corona, surface, heliosphere, magnetic field, and particles within the solar wind. The first images will be released in July. This is the first time that our in-situ instruments operate at such a close distance from the sun, providing us with a unique insight into the structure and composition of the solar wind, said Yanis Zuganelis, a deputy project scientist for the mission. For the in-situ instruments, this is not just a test. We are expecting new and exciting results. The solar orbiter will get within 26 million miles of the sun, which is slightly closer than the closest orbit of Mercury. Now, later during the mission, a series of gravity assists from Earth and Venus will nudge the orbiter out of the plane of the ecliptic by 24 degrees, which will allow the solar orbiter to scan the sun's poles, providing views of a rarely seen area and also which influences the sun's magnetic field and solar winds. The data from the Solar Orbiter and the Parker Solar Probe, a NASA orbiter that will eventually dive into the sun, into the surface of the sun itself, will dramatically increase our understanding of space weather. And we hope it will also enhance our ability to predict potentially dangerous solar flares. 
So that is very exciting. We're doing a lot of great work right now on the sun. Uh, there's a couple of other probes that are also either on their way or already there and working hard to uh, expand our knowledge of the sun. And so uh, one of the things that I mentioned just now is the possibility of dangerous solar flares. And so uh, the sun has actually been in kind of a quiet mode over the last um, decade or so, might even be a little bit more. Um, and so we haven't had a lot of solar activity in the form of big solar flares. But of course, as you might know, uh, solar flares can be a real problem. We have a civilization that is basically completely dependent on electronics. And a lot of those electronics are dependent on satellites and other infrastructure that can be damaged by large solar flares. And so if we are able to be able to better predict those, we might have a better chance of insulating our technology from what could be a really uh, hard hit to them from the sun itself. Okay. Let's take a second to get an update on one more space probe, the New Horizons, which is a fan favorite around these parts. This is the powerhouse space probe that gave us the amazing images of Pluto and the Kuiper Belt object, Arakoth. And it is now so far away from Earth and yet still doing great science. Uh, and so it's so far away that it has experienced the phenomenon of parallax. It now sees certain background stars in a slightly different position than we do on Earth. Now, you can do an experiment very easily uh, to see parallax. Uh, if you do the old trick of extending a finger at arm's length and closing first one eye and then the other, the shift in your finger against the background is the parallax effect in miniature. Now, the two stars used in the experiment were Proxima Centauri and Wolf 359, both of which are relatively close to us, um, less than 10 uh, light years away in each case, which, you know, is uh, <laughs> the very close neighborhood given uh, distances in the universe. And so the distance between the Earth and our quote-unquote raised finger as the New Horizons probe is 4.3 billion miles at this point. And so that sounds like a really, really, really long uh, distance, but remember, it hasn't even yet hit the edge of the solar system. Space is big. <laughs> Space is very, very big. And, um, you know, I know it's really hard to contemplate how big it is because it just doesn't seem like anything could be that huge. But uh, that's, you know, the big problem with aliens is that space is huge. And even if there was a complex and... Um, uh, adventurous civilization out there somewhere on a new and interesting world, 
chances are we'll never meet them. And I know that's sad in some respects, though, of course, there's always people who think if anybody came here, we'd be toast. So that's probably comforting to some people. Um, But it's definitely the reason that I am skeptical of all of the supposed sightings of aliens in the world up until this point. But getting back again to the story, the experiment was cut conducted in late April with New Horizons using its long-range telescope, telescopic camera and telescopes in Australia and Arizona, which took images of the stars at the same time. The New Horizons experiment provides the largest parallax baseline ever made over 4 billion miles and is the first demonstration of an easily observable stellar parallax, said Todd Lauer, a New Horizons science team member in a NASA press release. Now, the two stars showed different, slightly different positions against the background of stars that are much further away and thus aren't subject to parallax at this distance. In addition, the two frames provided a 3D stereoscopic view of the two stars. It's fair to say that New Horizons is looking at an alien sky, unlike what we see from Earth, said Alan Stern, the principal investigator for the New Horizons project. And that has allowed us to do something that has never been accomplished before, to see the nearest stars visibly displaced on the sky from the positions we see them on Earth. So again, that is super cool. And you can actually download those pictures. And uh, if you have the ability to do stereoscopic viewing, um, I will try and tweet out a um, set of directions for making a stereoscope. I haven't done it myself yet, um, but you can make it uh, just like the Victorians used to have. It's a Victorian style one. And um, with just a couple of... Uh, basic ingredients, you can have your own stereoscope. And um, I do plan to do it at some point uh, because I think it's a very cool thing. So I will tweet out the uh, link to that uh, on the Evidence-Based Radio Twitter later on today. Okay, let us round out our talk of space tonight uh, with one more story. I would feel remiss if I didn't bring you the story of the latest uh, explanation concerning the object Oumuamua. This new paper suggests that the object was a chunk of frozen hydrogen, a sort of space iceberg. The authors, Daryl Seligman of the Department of Geosciences at the University of Chicago and Gregory Lawton of the Department of Astronomy at Yale University, note It's a frozen iceberg of molecular hydrogen, according to a press release. This explains every mysterious property about it. And if it's true, it's likely that the galaxy is full of similar objects. Now, Seligman was co-author with Constantin Batigan on a paper in 2019, which suggested that the object was a type of comet, just an unusual one. This current hypothesis is a refinement of that initial assessment. They state in that paper, we show that all of Oumuamua's observed properties can be explained if it contained a significant fraction of molecular hydrogen H2 ice. Sorry, that's from the current paper. 
Slickman notes in the press release that the only kind of ice that really explains the acceleration is molecular hydrogen. Now, that's because molecular hydrogen ice is weird. It only forms at just above absolute zero or at negative 259.14 degrees Celsius. And when it sublimates, it neither produces light nor reflects light, which makes it hard to spot with telescopes. And this sublimation of the molecular hydrogen ice would explain the acceleration. They note that H2 sublimation at a rate proportional to the incident to the incident solar flux generates a surface covering jet that reproduces the observed acceleration. In other words, when it was heated by the sun, some of the H2 uh, sublimated away and that produced a sort of uh, jet kind of um, trail that then, of course, pushed the rest of the object forward. And they also suggested this composition would explain the odd shape. Mass wasting from sublimation leads to monotonic increase in the body axis ratio, explaining Oumuamua's shape. And so basically they compare it to how, how a bar of soap changes shape over time. So at some point you end up with sort of a long, thin sliver. And so that's what Oumuamua looks like. And what's even more interesting is that this suggests there are more objects like this out there. That we saw one at all implies that there are that there's a ton of things to see out there, Slegman said. The galaxy must be filled with these dark hydrogen icebergs. That's incredibly cool. Of course, now we need to figure out where it came from. Because of the specificity of molecular hydrogen's origins, there aren't a lot of places where it could be formed. The team suggests it was likely formed in a giant molecular cloud. These are the same structures that stars form from. They are massive formations of freezing hydrogen between 15 to 600 light years across. And so if this is true, it's very exciting because we can't look into these dense clouds and their cores are hidden from view. They suggest if we could intercept and examine an object like Oumuamua, we could learn more about these structures. It would be the most pristine primordial matter in the galaxy. It's like the galaxy made it and fedexed it, fedexed it out straight to us, said Seligman. The Vera Rubin Observatory is scheduled to come online uh, soon and will image the entire available sky every few nights. And it will catalog 90% of the near-Earth objects larger than 300 meters, which should now include objects like Oumuamua if they come through again. And so the telescope will also spot supernovae, Kuiper belt objects, and other transients. If Oumuamua's anomalous acceleration stemmed from sublimating H2 ice, it is likely that a large population of similar objects exist, they wrote in the paper. So if another one comes through the solar system, the Vera Rubin will most likely find them. And so finding and analyzing an object like this could have potential for us to understand more about the consequences of star and planet formation. Okay, let us move on now. 
sorry about that rumble, the uh, trials and tribulations of uh, recording from home in a non-soundproofed space. <laughs> um, so we are going to move back to Earth, but we're going to move back to Earth and stay on the top of the uh, of the world. And so we're going to talk about new research that has been conducted to try and answer the question, is plate tectonics or erosion the ultimate cause for the height restrictions of mountains? Now, there are several factors that affect the heights of mountains. The biggest one you probably think of is, of course, plate tectonics that squeezes rocks up to form mountains or that subducts and creates subduction zones where volcanoes form, which can also eventually become mountains. Now, beyond that, there actually are other forces at work, including weathering and erosional processes, such as wind, water, ice, and other factors that continually try to wear down these mountains. And so eventually they are worn down. But what allows for the height to top out is a topic that has been argued both as primarily plate tectonics and also primarily due to regional climatic variations acting upon erosion. And so a team led by Armin Dialforder at the GFZ German Research Center for Geosciences decided to test the question in a new way. They wanted to develop a way to calculate the theoretical height of mountain ranges based purely on the forces involved in, tectonic, in tectonics. The idea is that if erosion had a significant effect, the numbers would be significantly different from the actual data. Now, calculating the theor theoretical height actually took some doing. Uh, GPS measurements of plate motion was not enough to determine the forces at play. So the researchers used published estimates of a number of factors for 10 plate collision mountain ranges, where the data is based on earth, earthquake data, seismic imaging of fault zones, and other measurements, which helped them determine, one, the angle of the fault, two, the strength of the fault, and three, the depth at which the rocks along the fault began to deform in a ductile way, basically when they become squishy and malleable. And so this allows you to calculate the shear force along the fault. They then used this data to create a model of how tall mountain ranges could be based on the shear force acting against gravity. Now, of course, you must also account for seafloor topology being supported as the mountains bulge upward from the trench where the two plates meet. The team then took those numbers and compared them to the actual values in nature. What they found was that all of the numbers they calculated corresponded to the actual values within the range of the error bars. This suggests that erosion plays a very small part in the value of mountain heights. Now, this doesn't mean it's completely ruled out because those error bars are rather large and so there is room for erosion to have an effect, but not to the large extent that some researchers have argued. It looks like, via the mathematics of the system, 
It suggests that weathering may be taking place, but this would create a smaller amount of downward force as mass is taken away. So it would create less downward gravitational pull, which means that there would then be more, um, there would be ability for the fault to then counteract this by creating more uplift. And so this maintains an equilibrium of height. Now, of course, if there was no erosional forces, mountains would certainly be more pointy at least. <laughs> and so, yeah, um, obviously erosion is definitely a thing that happens. We know that that's how mountains, that's how we know that rocks become uh, gravel, which becomes sand and all of these things. We know that erosional forces are actually out there, but it turns out that un as an active, as a fault is still active, um, those erosional forces are counteracted. So as they take away material, new material uplifts because there's an equilibrium that needs to be maintained there against, between the sheer force of the fault and the gravitational pull of the mountain. Um, and so it's not until those sort of uh, forces that are creating the mountains have moved to different places. So like, for instance, the Appalachians, those are now pretty much mostly subject to erosional forces, which is why most of the Appalachians are rounded, look more like big hills in some cases than they do large mountains because they've had a lot of time outside of the system dynamics to erode. Okay, we are going to take a break now. We're going to do some PSAs and some show promos, and then we are going to come back and talk about another uh, place where a theory that was made years ago has finally been actually observed in nature, or at least in the laboratory. So do stay tuned for that. Uh, you are listening to Evidence-Based Radio, and I will be right back. There are everyday actions to help prevent the spread of respiratory diseases. Wash your hands. Avoid close contact with people who are sick. Avoid touching your eyes, nose, and mouth. Stay home when you are sick. Cover your cough or sneeze. Clean and disinfect frequently touched objects with household cleaning spray. For more information, visit cdc.gov COVID-19. This message brought to you by the National Association of Broadcasters and this station. Hey, this is Wendy, host of Valley Free Radio's subculture music program, featuring new wave, post-punk, indie, and electronic music from the 70s to today. Join me every Friday night from 8 to 10 p.m. here on WXOJ or stream it live from your favorite listening device at valleyfreeradio.org. Snickerdoodle shortbread, fudgy nut bars. How many treats in the cookie jar? One. Dad, you're supposed to jump over the rope. <laughs> One more time. The smallest moments can have the biggest impact on a child's life. Take time to be a dad today. Learn more at 1-877-4DAD-411 or visit fatherhood.gov. Brought to you by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services and the Ad Council. 
Has anyone ever asked you, don't you have enough records? Adventure Rocket Ship is new and old, indie pop, psych pop, post-punk, shoegaze, lots of chiming, jangly guitars and catchy melodies from both artists you know and obscure 7-inch singles from around the world. Adventure Rocket Ship, Tuesday nights, 9 to 11 p.m. on Valley Free Radio. Okay, we are back. You are listening to Evidence-Based Radio. And we are talking about science. And so we started tonight with a validation of a long-believed believed theory. And so we've got another one tonight. A liquid phase of water was first hypothesized in the 1910s and has finally been observed. Using a liquid crystal compound, the researchers discovered a new ferroelectric pneumatic phase of water, which could conceivably lead to a new class of materials and technological advances. Now, there are many different phases of liquid crystal, but the most common one is the pneumatic phase. This is the phase that allows for liquid crystal display technology. So, of course, it's extremely important to material scientists. Phases are defined by how the molecules behave within the material. Liquid crystal compounds are made of rod-like organic molecules with positively and negatively charged ends, like tiny bar magnets. In the 1910s, two physicists, Peter Debier and Max Born, proposed in papers written in 1912 and 1916 respectively, that it should be possible to design a liquid crystal in such a manner that its, mole- that its molecules fall into a state of polar order, with clear patches where the poles of the molecules are all oriented in the same direction, and that the direction can be flipped by applying external electrical fields. In solid crystals, this is called ferroelectricity because of its similarity to ferromagnetism. But it wasn't until 2017 that a team of physicists described the development of a new rod-shaped organic molecule that could be useful for liquid crystal called, called compound RM734. And in subsequent studies, the compound showed unusual behavior. They found that at higher temperatures, it behaved like a conventional pneumatic liquid crystal phase. But when temperatures were lower, however, the the molecular orientation was more akin to a splay arrangement. And so the latest research comes after this team used those findings to discover more about the capacity of RM734. Physicists at the University of Colorado Boulder were examining RM734 under a polarized light microscope and were applying a weak electric field to try and induce the splay pneumatic phase. They weren't actually able to achieve this splay, but instead they achieved a different effect. Patches of bright colors were found around the edges of the cell containing the liquid crystal. It was like connecting a light bulb to voltage to test it, but finding the socket and hookup wires glowing much more brightly instead, said physicist Noel Clark of UC Boulder. 
The researchers found that this phase of RM734 was between 100 and 1,000 times more responsive to to external electric fields, other rather than other pneumatic liquid crystals, which suggests that the molecules were in polar order. When cooled from high temperatures, ordered patches appeared spontaneously in a sample, with nearly all the molecules in each patch aligning in the same direction. That confirmed that this phase was indeed a ferroelectric pneumatic fluid, Clark said. Now, the researchers aren't sure why or even how RM734 displays this phase, but it suggests that more ferroelectric fluids may be possible and is yet undiscovered. This could lead to new and better technologies such as improved liquid crystal displays and computer memory. The team is now working on how it is that RM734 can demonstrate ferroelectricity. Because again, this could lead to a myriad of new applications. There are 40,000 research papers on pneumatics, and in almost any one of them, you see interesting new possibilities if the pneumatic has been ferroelectric, Clark said. And so, of course, I talk about this a lot of times where it's material science, it's one of those things where it's like, sure, that sounds pretty straightforward, that material sciences are looking for ways to create new things with this science. But I do always like to remind people that science is a pursuit and an end in and of itself. And even if this didn't create any new technologies, even if it turns out to be a complete dud in that respect, we still have the ability to know more about the world, and that is really important. And so, yeah. Okay, let's move on to one of our favorite topics on this show, animal, and especially bird, cognition. In this case, we are once again discussing the noble corvids. Of course, they often get a bad rap uh, because, you know, a lot of them are scavengers and things like that. But they are really excellent at scavenging. (laughs) So if you're new to the show, we've talked about how corvids can use and even invent tools, recognize human faces and transmit that knowledge intergenerationally, and even understand physics. For instance, they beat small children at displacement puzzles. And so... It turns out that you might have noticed uh, humans have an extraordinarily long childhood. Most animals are reared and become functional adults much earlier comparatively. But corvids have now been shown to also have a longer period of childhood. And this may just help explain why they're so intelligent. Humans are characterized by this extended childhood that affects our intelligence, but we can't be the only ones, said Natalie Uamini, a cognitive science at the Max Planck Institute for the Science of Human History. But little research has been done on the subject previously. Uamini and her team constructed a database containing information on the lives of thousands of species, including more than 120 corvids. 
they found that corvids spent more time in the nest before fledging, more days feeding their offspring as adults, and more life living among their family than other bird species, as well as having uncharacteristically large brains. The brains of ravens, for instance, make up almost 2% of the body weight. Now remember, these are birds which ordinarily need to be as light as possible in order to maintain flight. And so that ratio of 2% is actually comparable to humans. And so these findings were published in the Philosophical Transactions of the Royal Society B. Still one of my favorite titles for a science journal. <laughs> and so they didn't just stop there, though. The next step was that they took uh, this database and the information from it, and then they went out and they conducted field work. They spent years studying how easily wild birds solve novel tasks, which is kind of a standard test for measuring cognition. The better you are at figuring things out uh, when you haven't seen the task before, the sort of more smart we tend to believe that you are. And so they studied Siberian jays and New Caledonian crows two species known for extended childhoods and for being smart. New Caledonian crows are actually kind of often featured in these sorts of experiments. And in the wild, they actually fashion tools to fish for grubs from logs. Now, uh, Siberian jays, on the other hand, can solve food puzzles and recognize rare predators. Now, the birds were able to learn by example, and adults were willing to continue to teach their young, with juveniles often remaining with their parents for up to four years. That's about the equivalent of 20 human years. And they were able to continually get better and learn new skills along the way. The experiments strongly suggest that bigger brains are aided by parental care, notes study co-author Michael Greisner, an evolutionary biologist at the University of Constance. And for her part, Unamuni believes that humans, quote, as the pinnacle of evolution and intelligence, unquote, is not a hypothesis that is necessarily supported by the facts. So... A researcher after my own heart. <laughs> Other animals have evolved independently to be both intelligent and show caring for other members of their species. And so I think it's very important to remember that we are not the be all and end all. Uh, and Uamini also notes that studying other animals can help us gain insight into the evolutionary conditions that helped our big brains and our intelligence to evolve. And so, yeah, I think it is definitely a twofold thing where we learn more about how other animals can be very smart and also how our brains might have also developed these sorts of smarts. And so, yeah, I mean, that's that's a big thing for me. I'm really interested in that. And I think that we really need to spend more time realizing that animals are smart because I think it will help increase our empathy towards other animals. And I think that that is a way to reach people when it comes to things like 
climate change and pollution and things like that is to convince people that these aren't just dumb animals, that they have intelligence, that they have culture in some cases in a way that is absolutely comparable to humans. And so I just think it's very important for us to do this kind of work. Okay, let's move on now to talk about how certain animals like butterflies deal with raindrops. Now you might have never even thought of raindrops as anything other than a mild inconvenience, uh, but they can actually be very dangerous to small delicate animals like moths and butterflies and other insects. Being hit by a raindrop can be equivalent to being hit by a baseball or even a cannonball. Getting hit with Raindrops is the most dangerous event for this kind of small animal, says biological and environmental engineer Sungwon Sunny Jung from Cornell University in New York. The force of the impact isn't the only issue for such animals. Rain also disrupts insects' flight momentum and can pull warmth from birds so that so being able to limit their contact with raindrops is critical. Jung Seong-ho Kim and colleagues took a look at how different plants and animals have adapted to minimize this danger. They used a high-speed camera capable of capturing between 5,000 and 20,000 frames per second to watch water fall on butterflies, moths, dragonflies, gannet feathers, and katsura leaves. And so while other studies have looked at water dropping at much lower speeds, the team looked at water dropping at high speeds. Raindrops can actually reach up to 33 feet per second. And so because they had this high speed camera, they were able to have these higher speeds for the raindrops dropping. And so they found that when the drop meets the surface of a leaf or a butterfly wing, it actually collides with microscopic bumps or spikes, which create shockwave-like waves, that create shock-like waves uh, through the droplets. The waves interfere with each other, causing the droplet to form a wrinkled pattern as it spreads and causes the surface to ripple and thus have different densities at different points along the spread out surface. And so just as the drop is about to bounce away, the wave effect allows the spikes to actually rupture the water's film and shatter the droplets into tiny fragments. So if you ever have sort of looked at water, you know how you can sort of fill it just above the edge of a container and it will still stick because the water molecules are very good at cohesion. And so because of the nanoscale um, or the, I should say, microscale formations of these bumps and spikes, it's the wing is actually able to disrupt that cohesion and actually pierce it in order to sort of burst the bubble of the water. In addition, a nanoscale structured wax layer helps to repel the water. And so this combined with the fragmentation of water drops reduces the contact time of the liquid between the liquid and the surface by up to 70%. 
This also reduces the amount of heat and momentum transfer. And of course, again, that's another thing with um, birds is that they have this layer often of um, sort of waxy um, secretion on their feathers to keep them waterproof. And so that's one of the big things that is always a huge problem when you have oil spills is that the birds are disrupted. They don't have that protection any longer. And so they can actually get hypothermia because they're no longer able to uh, deal with the cold of the water. And so this allows insects and other small, delicate animals to retain warmth in their muscles and to be able to fly through rain. By having these two tiered structures, one microscale, the rough bumpy structure, and the other nanoscale, the wax structure, explains Jung, these organisms can have a super hydrophobic water repelling surface. <laughs> Interestingly, they also found pathogenic fungal spores in the fragmented droplets. And so what they found was that these spores have seemingly adapted to use this physical property of the um, animals to actually be able to better disperse themselves in these more tiny droplets. So when the bigger droplets are torn apart by the spikes, the spores are actually able to then disperse even more. And so they have developed a very tricky mechanism there in order to be able to um, kind of take advantage of this phenomena. Okay, so let us now... Um, go and talk about birds again. <laughs> and so we talked earlier about birds being smart. And now I want to talk about a smart human who learned how to create a lovely little bird figurine some 13,300 years ago. Now the figurine is of a songbird on a pedestal to help it stand. It's around three-fourths of an inch long and was carved from a burned, blackened fragment of animal bone. The artisan was most likely a hunter-gatherer living near Lingjing in northern China around the end of the last ice age. The people in this area also made simple pottery and shaped black chert into small, sharp blades. To a modern eye, the figurine seems quite basic, but it would have required knowledge of the material, knowledge of the material and mastery of several different kinds of tools in order to shape the figure out of the bone. This means that by this point in time, the people of this area must have already developed the cultural knowledge and interest in creating figures of this kind. In 1958, a few years before archaeologists realized that this site contained a rich archaeological record, workers dug a well around 16 feet deep and scooped out sediment from the last ice age. They left the pile, filled with shards of pottery, stone tools, and other artifacts, just kind of lying there near the well. It was only in 2005 that Shandong University archaeologist 
Zhang Yang Li and colleagues found the pile and realized that they'd been quite lucky. Normally, the artifacts would have lost much of their value, having been mixed up with dirt and artifacts from other layers. But this patch of land only had artifacts from the same era of the Paleolithic. The coarse pottery and the chert blades were distinctive and could be connected to other artifacts dated between 14,000 and 13,000 years ago. In addition, they were able to find bits of charcoal and burned animal bone, which were dated to around 13,300 years ago. Now, the bird is certainly not the first piece of human art to be made or found. It may just be the first human art to have been found that originated with a distinct culture not connected to the people who first migrated out of Africa. Now, of course, we can't be sure about this, but the figurine is carved from a novel material using different techniques and is in a style different from the first artifacts, which are human and animal figurines carved from mammoth ivory, which are found in Western Europe and in Siberia. Now, other groups also were carving figures of birds at that time. However, the majority were birds of prey and none featured this kind of pedestal. And they were, of course, mostly carved from ivory. And so the material the bird was carved from seems to have been specially heat treated to make it more suitable for carving. To do this would have required specialized knowledge. The bone must have been baked at a low temperature and kept away from oxygen. This suggests that the technique was already well advanced when this songbird was carved. Lee and colleagues scanned the bird with a micro CT scanner and mapped the details of its surface using microscopy. They believe that after baking the bone, after baking, the bone was ground with a coarse grindstone and then shaped roughly with a stone chisel. The artist would then have used sharp stone scrapers to smooth and refine the final shape and incise lines on the bird's head to indicate eyes and a bill. They also found that much of the surface was worn smooth, most likely from having been carried around in a leather bag. Unfortunately, that's kind of where the information ends. There's no way for us to tell what kind of significance the figurine had for the artisan and his people, which is always disappointing. Um, but it is amazing to see that these people so long ago were carving these beautiful little figurines and were interested in um, songbirds. And I think it's really interesting that this was found in China because China still does have kind of a legacy of interest in bird and bird song um, in particular. Not that that's, you know, exclusive to Chinese culture, but um, when I read about it, I, I immediately thought about other instances in Chinese culture where I would where I kind of felt that there were references that birds were important. So I think it's really interesting. Okay, so let us move on and talk about one more ancient artifact uh, discovery. So finally tonight, ancient bow and arrow technology dating back to 48,000 years ago, potentially, has been found in a Sri Lankan cave which makes it the oldest thus far found in Southeast Asia. The Fahian Lena Cave in southwest Sri Lanka 
has also yielded ornamental beads and tools for clothing manufacture, in addition to projectile points for bows and arrows. Now, the projectile points may be the oldest in Eurasia, though this is, fact is in dispute. Uh, there's a finding that dates to 45,000 years uh, that was discovered recently, uh, last year, I believe, and that might have a little better claim to its dating, um, but it's still a really cool and important find. This new archaeological evidence from Fa Hien Lena Cave in Sri Lanka provides an important reminder that modern human behavior has deep roots in areas far from our African homeland at a comparable or perhaps even greater age than the better known evidence from Europe. Chris Stringer, an archaeologist from the Natural History Museum of London who wasn't involved in the study, told Gizmodo. Now, information about people from Southeast Asia at this time is sparse because, according to a press release by the Max Planck Institute for the Science of Human History, the origins of human innovation have traditionally been sought in the grasslands and coasts of Africa or the temperate environment of Europe. Now, again, some other people have, um, have objected to this, but... Patrick Roberts, an archaeologist at Max Planck, notes that this traditional focus has meant that other parts of Africa, Asia, Australasia, and the Americas have often been sidelined in discussions of the origins of material culture, such as novel, project novel projectile hunting methods or cultural innovations associated with our species. Now, again, there is some, I mean, I think that Overall, they are right when it comes to a historical perspective. And I think that um, one of the things we have to remember, though, about Southeast Asia and other tropical places is that it's harder to find uh, evidence. And so the preservation in uh, acidic soils, in jungles and things like that is not conducive to this kind of material culture being present still. And so there is a little bit of that to consider that uh, certain places have just actually better preservation um, than other places. And so that is unfortunately a fact of nature that isn't necessarily uh, tied to cultural bias. But um, let's talk about, again, what actually they found. So archaeologists found four distinct phases of occupation at the Fahien Lena cave, dating to between 48,000 and 4,000 years ago, so quite the age range. The bow and arrow projectile points are made from animal bone and have been assigned a maximum age of 48,000 years. But if you look at the paper uh, as some eagle-eyed reporters did and as I also looked at, they may be as young as 34,000 years given their stratigraphic placement. And so there is some dispute about how old they are. But the team did find a total of 130 projectile points, which showed prior use, according to them, via fractures in the surface. They also had notches and wear patterns associated with being tied to thin shafts. 
Now, the points increased in length over time, suggesting that people began hunting larger game. The cave also featured 29 bone tools used to work animal skins and plant fiber, which may have been used to create clothing or possibly nets and traps. The beads that they found were fashioned from ochre and marine snail shells, which were not sourced locally, which suggests a complex trading network in the tropics at this time, which is very cool. The Sri Lankan evidence shows that the invention of bows and arrows, clothing and symbolic signaling, i.e. jewelry, occurred multiple times and in multiple different places, including within the tropical rainforests of Asia, explained co-author Michael Petraglia of the MPI SHH. And so, yeah, that is definitely true. Um, we definitely have evidence from all over the world of really innovative material culture. That is definitely not something that's in dispute. Um, I think that we've gotten better in our sort of Eurocentric, uh, Middle Eastern uh, focus. And I think we still have a long way to go, obviously, but I think that it is really interesting to find these really cool um, tokens of culture from these early ages in Southeast Asia. Because again, I think that a lot of this comes really down to the preservation problem is that, you know, places like caves, that's really excellent because there's a different preservation state than there would be in, say, a more tropical rainforest kind of um, environment. And so sometimes we just don't know and can't know what was there once. Um, and so, yeah, but it is great to find what we can. And that is going to wrap it up for tonight. Um, I do want to remind you that the struggle is not over. Um, even though we are going back to sort of the regularly scheduled format of the show, I do want to keep reminding people to be on the lookout for ways in which you can be anti-racist and in ways that you can continue to support people in the community who are traditionally underserved. And so thank you for listening and good night. Evidence-Based Radio is a member of the Planetside Podcast Network. To learn more, go to planetsidepodcasts.com. The theme song is Widgen by Bird Boy. Purchase the full song at smarturl.it slash birdboy.